There is an apocryphal anecdote about Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, and the poet Alexander Pope. Pope went to visit the old dowager one day, as he did throughout the 1730s and 40s, and read aloud to her the description of a tosser. He told her it was based on the Duchess of Buckingham. But Sarah spoke of it afterwards and said she knew very well whom he meant. What of herself might she have seen in a tosser? The internal conflict? Probably not. She got along with herself reasonably well. But throughout her life she had been caricatured as prone to rages, so she would have assumed that lines such as no passion gratified except her rage, so much the fury still outran the wit, or by spirit robbed of power, by warmth of friends, were arrows aimed at her. Sarah had been the companion of Anne, as princess and queen, for 27 years, and a powerful political force in Britain for full 60. Her life had defined both the extent and limitations of a woman's influence in public affairs during the late 17th and early 18th centuries. She chose to marry a man who, with her support on the home front, would change the course of European history through his military victories. She gave him seven children, of which four survived to adulthood, and dedicated much of her widowhood to celebrating the immensity of his achievement. As Anne's favourite, she had played a small but vital part in the glorious revolution of 1688, been courted and spurned by politicians, suffered allegations of treason and public disgrace, and was twice exiled to the continent. She was made a celebrity and a scapegoat by journalists of the first modern newspapers, to which she responded with more instinctive understanding of the press and more courage than most of her contemporaries. Opponents commonly portrayed her as her own worst enemy, as having caused her own and her husband's fall from the pinnacle of their careers and the collapse of the Whig government she championed through her tactless handling of Queen Anne's favour. By the means defeated of the ends might therefore have seemed a fitting epitaph. She did not have an eddy brain, any more than any woman was deemed intellectually inferior to a man, but her writing style, which Pope knew well, reads in places like a whirlpool. She was an indefatigable self-dramatist, casting herself, in her memoirs and unpublished writings, in a variety of heroic roles and prejudicing history forever against those who opposed her. Her surviving letters appeal as much to posterity's good opinion as to their beleaguered recipients. Her records of seemingly petty conflicts at court are indicative of far greater forces competing for control of Britain during her lifetime. Largely through her own efforts and investments, she became the richest woman in England and probably the Western world, worth over £1 million, roughly equivalent to £82 million today. She oversaw the building of Blenheim Palace and Marlborough House and became the sole owner of 26 other estates. She held a controlling interest in the national debt and the fate of the Bank of England lay in her hands on more than one occasion. But the most apposite lines in the Atossa passage may be those that refer to her being whate'er she hates and ridicules. For Sarah had a knack, particularly in her sexual slanders of those who succeeded her in the Queen's affection, of implicating herself whenever she insulted others. As she was well aware,
This was what gave her attacks their force. Despite her lifelong Whiggery and Pope's Tory Catholicism, Sarah and he became friends through their shared opposition to Prime Minister Robert Walpole. In 1739, when she was 79 and he 51, he wrote to Jonathan Swift that the Duchess of Marlborough makes great court to me, but I am too old for her, mind and body. At one level, the poet was fond of her. He wrote jokingly to their mutual acquaintance, the young Earl of Marchmont, there are many hours I could be glad to talk to, or rather to hear, the Duchess of Marlborough. I could listen to her with the same veneration and belief in all her doctrines as the disciples of Socrates gave to the words of their master, or he himself to his demon, for I think she too has a devil, whom in civility we will call a genius. Sarah was not so flattering about him behind his hunchback, allegedly writing that Lord Fanny, the Camp Lord Harvey, has my best wishes for the success of her attack on that crooked, perverse little wretch at Twickenham. The suggestion that Sarah cultivated Pope's friendship only to prevent him writing satires against her and her dead husband is appealingly cynical, but cannot be proved. Lord Bolingbroke spread the story that she once bribed Pope with a thousand pounds not to publish the Atossa verses. In revenge for a literary theft he believed Pope to have committed, and perhaps remembering a time when he had been a prominent target of Sarah's animosity, he related the story of the bribe in a footnote to the Atossa verses when he arranged for their posthumous publication under the title Verses upon the Late Duchess of Marlborough, 1746. This ensured that Atossa, whether or not based on Sarah, remained the prevailing image of her throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. However, the specific detail of the verses fits more exactly the life of the Duchess of Buckingham, with whom Pope had quarrelled in 1729. On the other hand, an earlier, quite different version, written before Pope made Sarah's acquaintance, was nominally about someone else, Princesse Marianne de la Tremoille, Princess Orsini, who rose to power in Spain at the same time as Sarah did in England, through an intimate friendship with the young queen of Philip V, and was then, like Sarah, dramatically dumped. This was Pope's way of writing about Sarah, without libel, as a public figure. Pope also liked to joke that the militant Thalistris, who cut Belinda's hair in The Rape of the Lock, was based on Sarah. So this is one of the first things we know about Sarah. She can be read into places she does not belong, overlooked in other places where she should be seen, and accused of actions, such as bribery, that she probably never even considered. In Pope's Epistle to a Lady, the antithesis of a tosser is Martha Blount. According to Pope, Martha was the epitome of female modesty and obedience, staying housebound in her godly garret to spill her solitary tea. To a greater or lesser extent, Sarah's life has always been judged against this standard, a temperate, demure model of correct female behaviour, which involved staying away from worldly business. The thirty or so biographies of her life have been a little like the autobiography of John Dunton, whose Life and Errors, 1705, contains alternate chapters telling the events of his life, first as he had lived them, and then as he believed he should have lived them. Many biographers have passed judgment on Sarah based on an alternative personality they think she should have had. 
Even when her energy and vivacity have been admired, they have also been presented as her fatal flaws. Sarah knew how hard it would be to get a good word out of posterity, especially as a woman. Among papers found after her death was a piece called A Character of Her Highness the Princess, attempted by Richard Hollings, M.D. The author claimed to have known the Princess of Wales almost from the hour of her birth, and so to be well qualified to assess her character. He complimented the princess on the fact that she seems to be the only person ignorant of that superiority of birth, on not having an enemy in the world, and on showing only sincere smiles of happiness and tears of grief, never those caused by disappointed ambition. She apparently lived within her means, spent only what she needed, and was free from the ostentation of little or sordid minds. She was congratulated on staying out of politics, on not being vain or frivolous, and on never having told a lie or even disguised a truth. Hollings added that her silence, considering her sex, is not the least admirable of her many qualifications. The joke was that this character portrait was of a newborn baby girl, not yet christened. It underlines the foolishness of other eulogies on the infantile virtues of women in this period, and the general biographical folly of looking for a blameless life. Sarah wrote a scribbled memo on it. This paper makes me laugh, for I think there is a good deal of humour in it, and two very exact characters. By this, she probably meant that the baby princess's perfect character was an inverted satire about her enemy, Queen Caroline, wife of George II. But it is also, whether she knew it or not, a reflection on Sarah's own character. A reversible catalogue of all the accusations made against her during her lifetime, and repeated time and again by historians and biographers. On the one hand, there is the innocent babe. On the other, the monstrous Atossa.